Welcome to the Story of Hope podcast, where we are sharing the story of how Bible translation brings hope to the people groups of the world. My name is Esther. I am the front person of the band Eversmith. I've been in partnership with Wycliffe Bible Translators for many, many years now as an ambassador, and I'm here today with my co-host. Hi, I'm sorry. I'm Alex Winslade. I work at Wycliffe Bible Translators New Zealand here in the office. Um, and today we have the privilege of being joined by Papa Bear. Would you be able to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Haumatakipi, Tachante Washte Yuhao Mani, Madakoda Yakapi, Petawashte Yuhapo. Hi, my Dakota name is he who walks with his good with his, with a good heart. I wow. uh, hope y'all are having a good day. Um, my given name, uh, my adopted name is uh, Todd Finney, but most people just call me Papa Bear. I am from Minnesota uh, in the United States. Cool. So. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So we usually start with just a couple icebreaker questions. Um, so the first one we want to ask you is, what's your favorite meal that you've ever eaten? Ever eaten? That's pretty hard. Uh, yeah. Favorite favorite meal in general is probably pizza, just because you can have such a variety yeah. of stuff on it. You can choose whatever you want. Like we just had a a Philly che- uh, Philly steak uh, pizza with uh, uh-huh. yeah with Alfredo sauce in Kansas City as we were driving through uh-huh. um, with one of my very good friends. And I think pizza is just a general catch all for for me for favorite meals. Nice. I feel like that's a good loophole to the question because a lot of people, it's like, oh, favorite meal. Like, what if I like variety? And you're like, no, pizza, you can still have a variety. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I have a, a very uh, broad spectrum of what I like to eat from our <laughs> traditional meals to a good steak dinner to, mm. you know, fresh vegetables at the farmer's market. So pizza is kind of a good catch-all because you can put all of that stuff on pizza. <laughs> what are some of the traditional meals that you guys have? Um, I mean, everybody knows the default. That, well, many people in the States know the default is fry bread, which is just mm-hmm. basically dough fried um, with mm-hmm. you know sugar and water. Um, it's actually kind of a strange history because we love it, but it was actually the only thing we could make when we were first taken to the reservations because you're given flour, minimal sugar, mm. some salt. And so you would take grease or whatever you could fry it in, and that's what it was made. And so you have people who sit in a wide range of it um, on thoughts of it, but I like it. And <laughs> it's kind of like pizza. You can throw whatever you want to have on top of it. My favorite is actually, it's called wujapi, um, and it's like a blueberry compote. So mm. you just, it, it's kind of like a uh, elephant ear or something like that with fresh blueberries just Yum. smashed all over the top of it. That's cool. Wow. And really interesting, so. too. I actually, I grew up around, um, my brother and I were pretty much the only white kids at our school, and we grew up with mostly native New Zealanders, so Maori people and then a lot of Polynesian people, and they all cook fried bread, too. And yeah. so that was a huge part of, <laughs> huge part of so my life. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, and it's kind of like pizza. It's a do-all. You can, you can have it with pretty much anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Super versatile. 
You know? oh, yeah, cool. I also uh, like buffalo stomach. It's pretty good, but you have to have uh, usually what uh, are small uh, prairie turnips, some potatoes, some uh, salt, carrots. Uh, it, it sounds strange, but when it's cooked correctly, it's really, really, really good. Mm. Yeah. We, we call it taniga. Taniga. Oh, cool. Sweet. Yeah. Well, our second icebreaker question is, would you rather be hot or cold? Cold. <laughs> uh, just simply because, one, uh, my family's been in Minnesota for about 40, 48 generations. Wow. wow. And so we're good at staying warm. And I just, I don't like being hot because it's more difficult to get cold than it is to get warm. <laughs> I fully agree with that. Like, you, you can put on more and more layers, but you can only remove so many layers. Exactly. And then you get to a point where it's just a lost cause. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When I first came to Nashville, which is where I'm based now, um, I, New Zealand is pretty temperate. Like we get pretty hot days in the summer, but you know, there's a beach close by or usually a river or a lake or something. Um, when I first came to Nashville, I didn't have a threshold for the humidity that took hold of my <laughs> yeah. life. And I was just like miserable all of the time and would sit in the air conditioning. And I felt so um, ridiculous because I think in New Zealand, uh, I had always made fun of air conditioning. I thought it was just such an unnecessary thing. And now I'm like, oh, my right. gosh, what a gift. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, have, we have humidity that most people don't have in the United States. Yeah, you know, people mm-hmm. say that it's really humid when it's forty percent, and in Minnesota we'll see eighty to ninety-five percent. Wow. And people don't understand that once you hit like eighty to ninety degrees with that high humidity, you're just going to sweat, and it's just <laughs> going to be sticky, and everything's going to steam up because it's <laughs> just that warm and wet, and it's really uncomfortable at times. Yeah. What's the climate like in the Philippines, Alex? Oh, very humid. I'm, yeah, probably because I grew up in the Philippines. Um, so it did take me a while to adjust to New Zealand, like the dryness of it, um, especially like I think running. Like, I think I, my lungs were used to the humidity. And so then I would go for a run in New Zealand and like I'd have a sore throat and like a dry cough, like just from the dryness of it. It took me quite a few months to adjust, but yeah. <laughs> That's so funny because I had the opposite issue. I, I was so used to running in the dry that when I started yeah. running in the humidity, I was like, it's in my lungs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that it kind of goes both ways. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, we're going to move into our main questions now. And I just wanted to give everyone a little bit of context uh, because most of the time when we do these podcasts, it's based around Bible translation and people who work in the field of Bible translation and all that sort of thing. And as far as I'm aware, Papa Bear, you're not in Bible translation, right? Uh, not really, but I'm interested in it. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in it just simply because um, we have so many diverse languages and for so long, um, where our our tribe and a few others were the reasons that uh, we actually won World War II in the Pacific, wow. um, because we didn't even have written languages; everything was oral. Mm-hmm. And so, when they were working on trying to create codes to uh, use troop movements, they actually used um, us and a few other of the nations 
because we could have conversations back and forth with other troops that were like for us, um, we're Lakota because I'm actually Lakota, but our nation is all called the Dakota nation. Okay. Um, they're actually dialects. Um, so it's, it's just whether you pronounce an L, an N, mm-hmm. or a D, um, more it's it's more pronounced as you're pronouncing things. Um, mm-hmm. So like Lekshi, Nekshi, and Dekshi all mean uncle, but it just it's it's an accent. It's not actually a, a, a full new language. Gotcha. And with our lack of, of written languages, um, there really never was were Bibles. We didn't even have a written language until 1959. Um, and that's why we were used in the war because they could just talk, all, all of our relatives could talk back and forth and just have conversation and they couldn't figure out what code it was because it was its own, its own language. Wow. Um, but it creates a, a difficulty um, because there wasn't a written language, so there's no way to write a Bible. Um, but now as we're trying to evangelize into some of those areas and try and teach in some of those areas and the languages are coming back so strongly, um, it's really difficult because most folks that are uh, really understanding and feeling their culture would prefer to learn in their native language instead of somebody else's. And for us, um, because of the situation here, uh, it's called the colonizers. English is the colonizers language. And there's, there's not really great feelings towards that, Mm -hmm. especially since most of their methodology control came through the church in, in some really, really ugly ways. Yeah, um, I think, uh, I can't remember if it was early this year <coughs> or at the end of last year, um, my husband and I, he wasn't my husband at the time because we, we just got married, but uh, we went to um, uh, Cherokee in North Carolina and watched their Unto These Hills um, production and started to learn a bit more about uh, the whole process of how the church was used to manipulate um, them to in giving away the land or, well, not giving away, but, you know, signing the treaty. And uh, it was horrifying. I just, the whole time I was sitting there so frustrated. And I, I remember there were little parts because um, Tennessee had, and, you know, Andrew Jackson and other families in Tennessee had such a, an important and negative impact on that whole situation. And I remember hearing some of those names in the storytelling and realizing, oh my gosh, this, that that place downtown that's named after that family, they were part of this whole entire trail of tears. And it was, it was really, really horrifying for me. So um, yeah, wild, all of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, and I think that's so important to be able to have those translations or even um, like there's a, native american or first nations translation where it's english but it's 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 uh it's the way that we would speak when we speak english um it's so important because you have so many people who will just refuse because it's in english wow and and here it's uh christianity by the most part is considered the white man's religion yeah and so to be able to have something in translation that somebody can read in their own tongue makes a world of difference. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's awesome that you have such a heart for Bible translation. And I think it was um, through our um, our family started becoming aware of um, all, all sorts of things, really. We moved to the area that we're in, which is named after uh, Andrew Jackson's estate called the Hermitage. And then we realized that he was the president that was responsible for the Trail of Tears and started d- doing kind of a deep dive into the history there. And um, then we started looking up different things about um, First Nations people languages in, in the US and, and you know, how, how many of them didn't have a written language, how many of them did not have a translation of the Bible, how, and kind of just started to realize, wow, this is actually a huge situation right here in this nation that so many people around the world think is like the leading evangelizer and, <laughs> and the leading kind of Christian nation. It kind of has that face to outsiders a lot of the time. And we were like, wow, right on, right, right in our neighborhoods and right in our backyard and right all across this nation, the, the, the very first people that were here have been so neglected in this way. And so we became really, really intrigued about how we might be able to help connect situations. And I think that's how we came across. I don't even really remember how we met Tove and he started hearing about what we were doing. <laughs> but and, and then he was like, oh man, I got to connect you with Papa Bear. And so that's why we thought we'd bring you on today because we do know that you have such a heart for Bible translation, but also um, because we're wanting to see not just Bible translation happen, but redemption happen for all people all across the earth. Yeah, well, and he started sharing with me what you guys are doing uh, with the indigenous folks in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And, and it really just, it really touched my heart that a, a uh, and please forgive me for the language, but a conquering nation um, would have interest in the original people. You know, to hear that 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 schools were learning about the indigenous people of those areas and that they were making the languages readily available and they were making the culture readily available. It just, it really, really, really touched my heart because I I think there's a certain favor and it's something that I discuss is that all of the indigenous people of the world had an original language. Yeah. And I think we often talk about all of these different things, but we we forget that we are all created in the image of God. And mm-hmm. so when the first man set foot on whichever land it is, and they were speaking their indigenous language, the land went, God is here. And then he speaks, he speaks these languages. And it's not that the earth has no ability to recognize other languages, but it's kind of like when your grandma calls, you just know her voice. And so I think that it's so important in these times. And I think that culture and identity really help us connect to God yeah. uh, because we know who we are. We know where we're from mm-hmm. and, and it just creates a peace within ourselves that we're able to just, it, it just is easier Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and certainly mm-hmm. there is 
um, having grown up in New Zealand and, you know, my parents' generation, um, when my dad went through school, it was not allowed to speak Māori in the classroom. And then in my generation, it was compulsory. It was a compulsory subject. All New Zealanders at that time, we were learning at least basic Māori. And I, and I was so, so grateful because I went to a school that was like fully bilingual. So we had so, so much um, of our classes were just fully Māori, fully immer- full immersion. And so um, that was kind of my experience and then seeing how they started to bring in, because there are so many Pacific Island people in New Zealand as well, so um, they started to bring in Samoan and Tongan and Fijian and and all of those sorts of things as well and just embracing all these different cultures. Um, And that was such a vastly different experience for me of growing up that way with all of these cultures integrated with one another but fully respected for who they are to then come to the south and see such a divide between the different uh, races and so yeah it's definitely um, been an experience learning how to negotiate that and talk about it and definitely lots and lots of fails but (laughs) but really really Exactly. But I think, you know, from what I've heard from New Zealanders, Pacific Islanders, because uh, ever since Standing Rock happened, you know, where all the indigenous people come in, it was said that every indigenous tribe of the world was represented at Standing Rock at one point. Wow. And so we had these communication open up with all of these different indigenous people from all different areas. And since I'm uh, considered a leader in my nation and uh, like when I was in uh, Dallas I was actually told that I'm the most recognized uh, First Nations pastor right now just because of where the position God's put me in where you know most people see me and they go yeah that guy's First Nations Um, and I'm known for you know portraying my culture well when I'm in other situations, wow, um, they've they've commented on how there's there's been these almost a social healing in New Zealand because people are just understanding each other and they're understanding that it's not a it's not an invasion of any sorts. It's just people want to be able to be themselves, and and it's actually created, um, at least from my understanding, areas of prosperity in New Zealand just by you know, and not that it all has to be monetary, but socially, that people are much more understanding of each other and that they're just, it, there's something special about that. And so when Tove started talking to me about that, it just really piqued my interest because, as you know, coming to the States, we got some issues here. Yeah. And a lot of those issues stem, actually, a lot of the world issues stem uh, from what happened here. Yeah, And uh, just to be able to understand that, uh, you know, one of the biggest defensive quotes during the Nuremberg trials was, what did we do wrong? We're just doing what you did to the Indians when they were judging the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, I I knew that um, we, I I can't remember which book it was that we read when we started diving into the story of Andrew Jackson, but I understand 
that when the Nazis were looking for an international precedent for what they wanted to do with the Jewish people, they looked to Andrew, President Andrew Jackson's um, policies as a, an international precedent. So it's pretty wild that that's yeah. such a part of the history here. And yeah, and yeah, even no, just, with all of the progress and everything that has happened in New Zealand, it there's still issues there as well. You know because. Um, I, I, I guess where, wherever people are involved, there's always going to be some people that are in it for the wrong reasons and stuff. But um, it is pretty wild to have grown up and seeing a lot of reparations made for land and, and all of that sort of thing and then just see such a different attitude here towards First Nations people. So, Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, I mean, there's always going to be chaos and change. Yeah. But in that change, you know, it's, there's a fool in every crowd, but if you give it long enough and it's good enough, it will just take hold and grow. And so just to see that a nation took that opportunity and then is trying it out and sure there's going to be issues. I mean, anything changing, Mm -hmm. there are people who are not going to like change and there are people who are going to want it to happen faster than it should. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, by starting by giving languages a voice. I think that's just the primal thing is giving someone a voice. And so when you guys produce Bibles in an indigenous language, it's giving them that voice and it's also giving a voice to them that they can understand. Mm -hmm. And so it's hugely important. And uh, for my, for my tribe and for my nation, um, there are a lot of, because we are such a large nation, there are a lot of other groups that actually speak what um, the, the uh, scientists called Suyin dialect, but it's very uh, difficult because we don't even like the term Sioux because um, that's actually what most people would have learned that we were called was the great Sioux nation. Okay. Um, but it's actually... It's a slang term, and okay. it's it's just like uh, the word squaw is a slang term, and neither one of them are, they're French trapper slang, and neither one of them are pleasant things. Well, they're, mm. they're slurs for human body parts. Wow. That's awful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, just to give life to a primary language where people can say, okay, this is it. This is the right way and start just to chip away at that is is something really neat. And that's what really intrigued me about what you guys do. Mm. Yeah. I think you touched on a really good point. I love the way you put it. It's giving people a voice in two ways, you know, giving them a voice to be able to speak in their language, but also they can understand the voice of God. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Beautiful. Um, Yeah. So we'd love to sort of, start off with sort of could you share a bit about how you became a follower of Jesus and how his word the Bible has impacted your life and leading into your where you are in ministry and leadership now um I I was actually raised seventh-day Adventist wow and uh yeah it didn't go well for me (laughs) and uh because you know theologically they are some of the most studied people you know, they, they know their Bible, 
Um, but for me, you know, the movement of the Holy Spirit just really couldn't keep me in that pocket. And so I walked away for a really long time. <clears throat> then got saved in an Assemblies of God church. And it was cool and it was great, but there were also still some things that I just didn't quite agree with. Honestly, because my Seventh-day Adventism had had me studying the Bible so ferociously mm-hmm. that I would go in there and be like, this is not how I understand the scripture. And so I, I did become a pastor through there, and I have served as a Lutheran pastor, Assemblies of God pastor, a Baptist pastor, and also non-denominational pastor, which are it's a denomination (laughs) and um, just really whenever I would become a pastor in, you know, a new uh, denomination, I would start really studying their theologies, studying all those things. And I found myself, you know, different churches prefer different translations. It's just the way it is. And so I started reading those translations and then I became more and more curious and just started reading more and more translations. And so I, every night I put on you version and I listen to the Bible. I read it in uh, every version that I can find uh, just because I think that as we find a center line in all of it, we really see what the scripture is. And so that's how it kind of evolved. And as it evolved, I started teaching on a lot of those thought patterns that I, that I found and people really liked it. And the Holy spirit kept on going and people would put me in these positions where I would teach. Um, because I think just like with Toast translation, he has the new messianic version. He offers it from a Hebrew culture and worded the way that it would be within the culture. And you start seeing that historical culture, which is so important when you're reading through it because it changes the understanding of so many different things. And and so I think as, you know, as long as the translations are the best translation possible for that language, that time, that culture, that society, it just helps us get these better rounded views of not only the word of God, but the word of God for those times and be able to just gain a almost, you know, hopefully almost timeless perspective mm-hmm. of how scripture is through it. So I've become, you know, I, I just, I enjoy reading the Bible and I enjoy reading it and listening to it in many ways as I can. So I understand what I'm trying to share, especially when I'm sharing with, with my culture, with other cultures, because we're a tribal culture. And we, we always are going to be a tribal culture. And it's hard to teach about tribal culture through an industrialized thought pattern. Yeah. And so the more that you just draw it straight from the book, take the time to, like, I have a wonderful series of messianic rabbis and an orthodox rabbi who I love to bounce things off of. Um, but then I've also been able to connect with some archaeological historians will even offer me cultural context around it to just get a better well-rounded view because I think sometimes we saw stuff through you know whoever was translating it saw it through their view 
Yeah. And it doesn't make it a bad translation. It just makes it, it was the translation for that space in that time. And so we have to understand those things. Yeah. Just, you know, how, you know, like in our world, sick is, you know, back then it meant you're ill. Now it can be like it's super cool or it's mm-hmm. terrible <laughs> or whatever in between. And being able yeah. to decipher that and come to a common line where we can understand, oh, that's what they really meant. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, I really appreciate that. It's cool. I love to, um, when I'm digging into certain things, I love to see how different translations um, have represented it as well. And, and also love digging into kind of the Greek and Hebrew and um, understanding more, you know, from just the words, but also the cultures and all of that sort of thing. It's, it makes the word come alive, you know? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I can fully relate to that. Um, so I, I have had an interesting experience in my life in that I've always been part of a majority in that, you know, New Zealand is predominantly a white nation or a European nation. Um, but I was a part of a minority in that in the area that I grew up in, it was only five percent white, and so like my brother and I were the only white kid. And then, and then coming to the U.S., I'm part of a minority in the sense that there's like a handful of New Zealanders in all of the U.S., and um, you know I'm part of the immigrant community here as well. Um, and so, definitely, even though I, I look like the same as a lot of people, my ideology and my um, and my background and all of that sort of thing are quite different sometimes just because of my life experience is so different. And I wondered if you would share with us um, some of your experience of growing up as a minority, including uh, I understand that um, to be such a um, intense Christian person can sometimes be a, a minority amongst the First Nations people. It can be a minority amongst the people that I was just with in Dallas, too. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, I was adopted into a white family because of some things that were going on in our reservation. They actually actually fudged the paperwork so a lot of us could be adopted out um, because there was a lot of violence going on and there were certain families that were afraid that that their children would be killed. And so to dodge that problem, they offered them up for adoption. I was one of those kids. So I actually grew up as the only Indian kid in my town Wow! of predominantly uh, upper middle class white people. And so that was really, really difficult. I ended up finding my biological family in my mid twenties, but it was, I had already established my life. Wow. And so I had no really real interest in it until my son was born. And he took a, a really strange fascination with it after um, he had a school project where he had to come and tell where we were from. Wow. And he brought it home and he said, so, Dad, where are we from? You know, I said, well, we're from here. And he said, no, Dad, like, are we from Europe or Asia or Africa? Said, we're, we're from here. Wow. He said, no, 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 Dad, Dad, where, like, where are we from? I said, Bob's our family's been here forever. We didn't come from anywhere else. We were always here. And so he really started pushing into that. And then about 
six years ago, I found my mother's side of my biological family. And when that happened, um, this thing just sparked in me. Wow. And because of my age, because um, of me being one of the oldest male children, because of our bloodline, I, I I had learned a bunch in my 20s, but I, I just kind of, I'm a city Indian that's in Minneapolis. What does that matter? And then about six years ago, I got kind of uh, thrust into, into the limelight um, because of my family's bloodline, because I have famous ancestors, things like that. Wow. And then my family could see the spirit move in me. And so it hasn't been the same experience as others have um, because my family still kind of adheres to the, in our culture, it's not, not nice to shame anyone, but it was always very standoffish. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we were at a large event. I'm actually the leader, uh, one of the leaders of the Dakota 38 ride, which is the most famous horse ride in the world. Wow. Um, it's actually a memorial ride where we pray to forgive everyone everything uh, because mm-hmm. some of our ancestors uh, were unwilling participants in the largest mass execution in American history. Wow. Uh, where on December 26th, 1862, Abraham Lincoln ordered the largest mass execution in American history. And my great, great, great grandfather was one of those men. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so I got uh, put it, my aunt in a loving way tricked me into coming on the ride. And through a series of events where I was praying and God moved, my family was kind of like, yeah, you're the one. And it was not by choice. It was not by understanding, but it was uh, just being thrust into that. But in that, there are a lot of people who dislike me because I'm Indian, but I'm Christian because of what happened in our boarding schools. And for those of you who are hearing this that don't know is what happened is after the Indian wars, the American government created these things that they called Indian boarding schools where they brought the children of the chiefs into these schools. They cut their hair. They made them pray. They, they were, they tortured and often killed them if they spoke their language, if they uh, were caught praying in any way other than Episcopalian or Catholic. Um, And the whole institute of the school, as written by the guidelines, was to kill the Indian to save the man. And because they didn't understand that, you know, that we were already a spiritual people who understood that there was a a singular creator who made us. And there are even other stories that bridge bridge gaps in uh, Abrahamic beliefs. Um, everybody moved about as far away from it as possible just because the only experience they had was somebody who had cut all their hair, forced them not to, to not speak their own language and keep them away from their family at extreme costs. And, and a lot of kids died. A lot of them did. Uh, right now, they've been exhuming the bodies from the boarding schools, and I think they've they haven't even gotten to a tenth of the boarding schools, and they've exhumed ten over ten thousand bodies of children. Wow! 
And so it created a big distrust and a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth for anything associated with church. And those boarding schools didn't close till the seventies. Wow. And so everybody says, well, it's so long ago. I was born in 1973. There were some of those style boarding schools that were still open when I was born. That is mm-hmm. insane. It's kind of like and, um, how they have, um, you know, segregation and all of that was still around happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mind-blowing yeah, that had, it was so recent. Well, it actually had to take a, an act of Congress um, because if I was wearing things like this or, or rings like these or or like I had uh, like eagle feathers, um, I have one hanging from my dash, but it's hard to, you know, you can see the tip of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that was considered illegal and you could be killed for it. Wow. And wow. that was that was in 1979. And, and so a lot of these wounds are still really fresh. And so it, it's a very hard thing to do uh, to walk that type road. But at the same right, when it's done right, like because of our hair being cut, um, most of us won't listen to anybody with short hair. It's actually given a derogatory term, which means cut head or boarding school haircut. So I have a very long braid hanging off of the back of my head because my grandmother said, if you don't have a braid, they won't listen to you. Wow. Um, so it's been difficult at times, but God has showed up time and time again in, uh, in signs and wonders. And none of our elders will argue with signs and wonders. Wow. And so God's really kind of paved the way, but I know that for a lot of the other pastors who have short hair and don't understand the culture, they, they get torn apart. You know, one of the biggest things in my nation is if you're a man and you're yelling and you lock eyes with another man, that's considered a challenge to fight to the death. Mm-hmm. And so you can think what your average Pentecostal pastor would have reaction to at the reservations. And most of the reservations know that these guys don't know it. So the men don't even bother showing up because they don't want to be pushed and they don't want to have to go against what they believe. Wow. And so it's, it's a really interesting tightrope to walk, but uh, God's been good. And he showed off in a lot of ways to make it really uh, much easier for me than some others. Wow. That's amazing. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing. I think it's just important um, just to listen to people's stories. Um, you know, as you were sharing earlier about all the progress you're hearing about in New Zealand, I was going to say that yes, that is great, but that we're still on a journey. And I think the stage we're at is just yeah. learning to actually be quiet and listen to people. So yeah, thank you. Um, I think it's just important to start conversations. Um, but with the, I understand I have a stat here that there are around five hundred. 70 First Nations people's tribes registered at the federal level um, yep. and that a few of them, if any, have a full translation of the Bible in their language. So what's the situation in your tribe? Uh, no translations. Wow. wow. Uh, no translations. One part of it is because we, we didn't have a written language till 1959. Um, we have mm. hymns translated mm. into and we have some of our other hymns that we just sang. 
that are translated, but it, even then it depends on which book you pick up. Hmm. Um, hmm. And it can, cause the, it's, it's still what would, what most would consider a new written language. And so you'll find discrepancies just from one hymn book to the next, even if it's the same hymns. Wow. You know, in spelling and in the accent points and all of that. So, gotcha. So, uh, no, as far as I know, there are no, there was one that was uh, translated, but as far as I know, all of the copies were destroyed um, because of the feeling towards the church. Hmm. But I don't even know if that was complete. And, and honestly, it's not my area of expertise. So there may be a couple of, mm-hmm. but as far as I know, honestly, with the paths that I cross over, I would be surprised if there is one just because all of the people that I know that are language speakers and pastors and all that, I, I'm pretty sure they would have provided me with a copy at one time or another. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of touched on it a little bit, um, the the trail of tears um, that happened here. And um, I was wondering, was that something that impacted uh, your people or were you guys involved in a different part of that story? Um, I think every tribe had a death march. Mm-hmm. Um, it just depends on what it looks like i mean that theirs by far was the first one um but it wasn't the last yeah it was kind of the blueprint of how to remove others because you know you thin out the herd yeah um because what most people don't realize is many after that one and even during that one they stripped you of all any garment that was indian hmm and so but they didn't provide anything else afterwards Wow. And so like in Minnesota, uh, they marched a lot of people uh, into South Dakota, into North Dakota, and they were marching them in January, February, March, April, May. Um, So you had people with little to no cover being marched in temperatures that could surpass negative 30 with wind chills that could surpass negative 70. Hmm. Um, because one thing they had learned about the Trail of Tears was if you minimize the people that make it, then that's less people you have to take care of. So awful. One of the one of the things that we've been talking about in terms of wanting to see a similar thing as what has started happening in New Zealand um, and has a long way to go, but... Um, but see more of that same thing here where there is uh, more of a widespread um, acceptance and appreciation for and celebration for of the First Nations people um, and, and how much they have, how much you all have impacted and um, been part of how this nation even is in so many levels that aren't recognized um and we've been we've been calling that based off of i think it's isaiah 53 um where it talks about a highway of redemption and that highway isn't so much about you know 
trying to fix what went wrong in the past. It's more about bringing everyone in one accord together into this highway that is that redeems all people as one and brings everyone in and to have to play their own part. And I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of how you might see that happening, how you might see that um, transition happen, how people can engage with these issues um, in order to be a part of helping to see it come to pass. I think by going through that, um, we could reintroduce the Constitution. <laughs> and when I'm saying that, most people don't realize that the Constitution was actually mostly written up from a thing called the Great Law of Peace. Wow. And the Great Law of Peace was actually uh, a written document that was actually uh, the Hudashoni. They used to be known as the Iroquois Nation. I'm messing it up because I'm trying to get used to saying the new word. But it was known as the Iroquois Confederacy. Okay. And they had this document that was called the Great Law of Peace. And the it was actually a documentation of what many of the governments on this con- continent originally had. Okay. Um, the founding fathers found it and, and wrote some of it down, and it became the Constitution. It's actually why the Constitution is the first document in recognized Eurocentric history that says, we the people. Wow. Instead of I the king, because that's how we spoke was we the people that if they were with us, that we were responsible for them. Now, when I'm talking about the Constitution being reintroduced, they only took certain sections to make the Constitution. In the great law of peace, there are actually also sections about women, children, and slaves that didn't quite make it to the Constitution. Gotcha. Uh, the original law of this land uh, actually detailed how you treat everyone in the land and how you treat them all with honor and then what their rights are mm-hmm. as people, uh, men, women, children, and even slaves. Wow. And so if we get back to that point where we start reading through these documents, you can actually see a really beautiful blueprint that protects everyone, that mm-hmm. it, it really is we the people. And it really is um, details set up for everyone that occupies the land instead of, and the Constitution does a great job, but it definitely lacks certain things in certain areas. And, uh, and what I believe those areas it lacks in are the things that they didn't bring over from the great law of peace. Wow. I, and I'm... so I think if we return to that, you get back to America's original intent. And when something gets back to its original intent, I think God can really, really, really make a statement. That is so interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go look it up <laughs> and d- dig into it. I'm so intrigued to get to read and see the congruence and where things kind of deviate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be so interesting to Yeah, to it's up. probably still under Iroquois Confederacy, okay. Law of mm-hmm. Great Peace, because only Indians have really... Hudawashoni, that's it, Hudawashoni um, <laughs> Confederacy is what they call it now because that was what they originally called. Okay. And then just like mm-hmm. we went from Sioux to Dakota, they're, they're going back to their original name too. Mm. 
You did mention earlier um, that there is a bit of a renaissance going on amongst the First Nations people here um, with the languages. Um, can you share a little bit more about about that? And Sure. Like uh, there's one of my cousins does children's shows that are primarily, primarily in Dakota. Um, there are immersion schools. There are things like that. Um, but they're on a tribal level. They're not on a state or national level. Yeah. Um, they are now actually teaching through one of my uncles at uh, uh, Mankato State University. They're teaching the language. And then one of my aunts is actually teaching the culture there. Wow. Um, so it, it's there is a renaissance, and we're seeing uh, an addition to that. We're seeing, you know, like my... Most of my sons speak uh, Lakota way better than I do, um, cool. but they've they've taught themselves to count and all of that stuff because uh-huh. there's just something in understanding your identity wherever you're from. You know, it's it's even one of my sons is is part Irish and and part Indian, and you know he got into this point where he was uh, really he didn't like white people, and I had to sit with him. I said you know, here's the deal. You come from a tribal people on both sides. You know, you're Celt and you're Dakota. They're both beautiful tribal people. Um, You know, the way I explain it to him is the industrial revolution needed cogs in a machine. It didn't need a beautiful tribal people. And the Europeans were the first ones to suffer that. And, you know, we were just we still had our weapons. We still know our culture and we weren't giving it up for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for other cultures, they had God per se, telling them this is what they had to do because there's a guy with a hat that everybody recognized as the voice of God on earth. And they didn't know any better. Yeah. You know, because they had been lulled into this, what I call the machine of just not questioning. This is what we do because he's the one who, makes all of our decisions mm-hmm. and we were always a very communal people so there was no one person who made our decisions the, the community made the decisions and so you know we just had a chance to retain ourselves whereas if you look at like germanic tribes and celtic tribes and you know there are uh there are actually uh indigenous finnish people that i met that are like I mean, they're fiercely tribal. Like, like we were like, dang, these dudes are serious. <laughs> like when we, um, you know, and I, but that's the thing is, as you understand who you are, mm-hmm. there just becomes this, a sense of identity, which we're so much lacking in society right now that you're able to just center yourself in a way. And I think that's, it's cool. But then you also have people who are, are multiple ethnicities and really, as they are able to draw peace to themselves in that, they become walking skeleton keys because their blood had their blood and their voice has rights on many different lands. Wow. You know, so I, I think it's just all so important, and that's why I think language is so important, and being able to read things in your own language is important, and understanding things in that way, mm. and then being able to teach others about it. Yeah. That's amazing. It made me think of, um, I'm really quite into sort of ancient history and, um, 
just remembering some of the stories of the battles between like Rome and Carthage and, um, you know, Hannibal was one of the greatest generals and they legend has it that um, his battle against Rome, which ultimately Carthage became a non-power and Rome went on to become the one of the greatest powers in history. But um, right. he had a battle against Rome where uh, apparently, so they say, um, it wasn't until the world wars that um, more people were killed in one battle. Um, and he was just an incredible tribal man who had a yeah. knack for um, for being a general. And then, and then I think about um, Rome had such a hard time because the the tribes of Germany now what is now Germany um, they right. yeah they were you know and and people do forget that white people came from tribes too <laughs> right um, so yeah yeah so, everybody had their own tribal culture and their own tribal language and their foods and their heritages and they were all brought here I mean it was given by God yeah. You know, that, that so many people, if they, they trace it back, I was just sitting with some Hungarians. Mm-hmm. And they're like, how can you be like this way? I said, well, I just started tracing my history back, 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 back until I started finding the God stories in there that I could just clutch onto and be like, no, this is this is definitely God. Yeah. And we yeah. actually started talking about their history until they got to a point because they had a break and it was heavily into paganism and things like that. Well, we kept on going back and back and back. And also one guy just like his eyes light up and he starts talking. The translator is like, we found our story and he started sharing. And I'm like, see, there's God right there. And that's it. That's at the back of your heritage. It was your original intent. And so just clutch onto that and keep going. Yeah. And it was funny because for the rest of the event, all they would do is like every time I saw them, they'd hug me, mm. you know, and then just be like, thank you. Thank you. And I, mm. and I think that's it because we're living in a world devoid of identity right now. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my kiddos said, you know what woke means, dad? It means we've run to the end of Google and we're out of information and we'll take <laughs> it from anything or anyone who gives us. It. Wow. What an insight. I love that. I'm probably going to use that. Yeah. Well, it's, I teach on it. We've been saying awaken, awaken, awaken for centuries. Yeah. And because we didn't like the verbiage of the way it was expressed to us, we go, nope, that's evil. Wow. But it's just understanding the culture. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. know, taking the time to understand millennial and Gen Z culture and going, no, what does this actually mean to you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, you know, they say eternity is written in our hearts and all of that sort of thing. And I remember um, my dad had worked with this man called Sam Chapman, and he was um, <laughs> a, a really um, interesting and important yes. member of the Maori community. And he um, he shared with my dad about this Maori culture uh, custom where the men greet each other by pressing their noses together and um, it, it is to share the breath of life and so he he was like hey Phil do you know it's called a hongi and he said hey Phil do you know when the first hongi was and he was like uh, no I, I don't know what you're talking about and Sam went on to explain to my dad well it was when God breathed life into Adam and yeah. um, which is such a beautiful way of 
expressing that continuously through um, our you know our culture and and all mm. of that sort of thing. But <laughs> I've I've always been yeah, like, the wow. Reason I laugh. Reason I laughed is because um, Jay Chapman is a friend of mine. He's like third or fourth cousin. So when you said Sam Chapman, I was like, I've heard that name before. <laughs> awesome. Wow. Yeah, that's really but cool. But that's how small the real world really is, is when yeah. we start engaging each other, all of a sudden you find all of these connections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually like, God, what's my connection in this? And you're like, Sam Chapman. I'm like, oh, yeah. There's my connection. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah, I think we touched on it earlier you said um, that, you know, everyone understands God through their own worldview. And I think that's just right. a, really shows that we're, if we're only going to have our own worldview, we're not going to, you know, it's when all these cultures come together that you have a greater um, perception of God and who he's created us to be because he's created these different cultures. And, you know, there's that right. picture and revelation Absolutely. of people from every nation, tribe and tongue coming together. And that's uh, an eternity. So. Yeah, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on sort of how the church can grow in unity and grow as one with in recognizing all these cultures as well. I think when you give every, when you give people an an equal voice, uh, it, it levels the playing field. Yeah, you know, so many times it's been in the church. It's because I said so. Hmm. And when you give somebody the tools to come to the table equally, because let's face it, no matter who you are, there's always somebody in your community that, like in my community, that speaks more Lakota than English. And mm-hmm. so what good is an English Bible to them? Yeah. You know, it, it, so if you provide them with a tool that they can use where they can come to the table and not have to read it in a brokenness, Mm-hmm. where they can truly comprehend, understand it, and just take the time to process it on their own terms instead of having to have a translator in the room. Yeah, It makes a world of difference. Yeah, Because you're not changing the word, you're just changing the language. So they can quote verses and be like, well, this is what this verse means to me, and actually have it speak to their soul in a way because it's the language they understand. Instead of having to go, well... Okay, so they're using this word, and it's a adjective, and it's descriptive, and all this stuff, and and take time to decipher it. Mm-hmm. They're actually able to read it for themselves, mm-hmm. and I think that's the most important thing. That's how the church took over, is because there were only so many people who could read, and so they're able to say, "Well, if you can't read it, you have to listen to the people who read it." And I think in many places, there's still that mentality. And when you're able to give something to someone in a language that they can read and understand as their first and primary language, that opens a door for thought patterns that they weren't able to have because they don't have to have a translator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting that one of the early stories in, in the book of Acts was Philip being... Um, I mean, transported <laughs> um, yeah. to go share with the Ethiopian eunuch who then went and spoke to his people in his language, sharing what he'd been taught. Um, right. I think that's a really, really powerful thing. I, and then also speaking of eternity, you know, um, Psalm 19 and Romans 1, they really speak about 
every day in every language creation speaks of God's glory, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I think the reality of the situation is heaven is probably going to look way more like Acts 2 <laughs> than anything else where we're all able to communicate in all of the like 7,000 languages there are and, and right. heaven's going to be so diverse in that way. And so when we develop and cultivate this heart and hunger to understand one another and celebrate one another and not feel like humans have such a way of thinking that because one thing is important, it means the other thing's not as important, but there's so much of a space for we're all as important. Right. Well, and, and when you break linear thinking, yeah, because we forget that they were, you know, when, when Pentecost came, mm-hmm. everybody could understand them. Yeah. You know, when the messengers come they, at the end, you know, the, the two messengers, yep. they're speaking like, that everyone can understand. Yep. So I think that those are keys to be like, let's make it so everybody can start off from a primary point. Yeah. Because if you're already doing that and then, you know, I don't know. I, I think language is so important and translation is so important. And I think what ha- what happens what happens if we awaken something in ourselves? by striving after these things, because if we're God, you know, if, if we are his image, he has the ability to understand all of us. So if we push forward into something, what happens if we unlock something that gives us an ability to communicate in more ways than we ever thought once again, you know, to help fuel this last great revival, what's coming to, to be able to, to be able to reach the world. And we have to start in the most basic ways. Mm-hmm. You know, we just have to move forward. It's God's job to do the wild and crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I like that, the wild and crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> well, I, uh, we always ask this question of everyone that comes onto this podcast, but are there ways that people can support you and what you're doing specifically? Um, sure. Uh, I have a 501c3 called Streets of Hope Outreach. Um, you can find me on Facebook and track it down. We're actually, we just revamped it, so we're redoing all of that stuff. But honestly, the biggest way that anybody can support me is just keep me in prayers when God puts me on your heart. Yeah. Um, because without the prayers of so many different people that are consistently praying for me, um, I wouldn't be able to do any of this. You know, from my wife to... Uh, these three octogenarians, people in their 80s, who sit down every Monday morning, and I have been mm-hmm. on their prayer list for all wow. of the people that they pray for for probably 20 years now. Wow. You know, and so really, it's it's prayers that carry us. Mm-hmm. The way I explain it is, like, prayers build the altars. Uh, people like me are just guys who don't mind fire and aren't afraid to lose their eyebrows. <laughs> but if nobody puts the eyebr- if nobody puts the altars out there for us, we're just running around with gas cans trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. And so, really, that's probably the most important thing for me is, you know, and also just pray for your neighbors. Pray for because what I'm really trying to do is connect cultures. Mm-hmm. So just pray for mm-hmm. the people around you. Yeah. You know, your neighbors, anybody that you see in your path that God highlights, just just pray for them. Because awesome. we're all on one mission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if we just mm-hmm. kind of broaden our spectrum of what we can do to help each other, I think it'll turn out okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, 
Speaking of praying for people, we um, every podcast we pray for five different nations. Um, so today we're going to be praying for Armenia, Aruba, Ascension Islands, Australia, and Austria. So Esther, if you would like to lead us in prayer for those. Yeah, sure. Father, I thank you so much for these nations. I thank you that you have created every kindred, every tribe, and every tongue. I thank you for the languages that are represented in these people groups and the different tribes. I thank you for all of the work that has been done in the area of Bible translation and in the area of evangelizing and and reconciling people with their creator. And uh, I pray for all of the work that is still to be done. Um, I ask that you would rise up, raise up your church in all of these nations and, and give mm. them strength and give them courage to, um, to be love in person to every, every people they encounter. God, I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would release your Holy Spirit in these nations to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' Amen. name. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you today with us, uh, Papa Bia, and um, we would love for you guys to give us any feedback uh, from home of, of what you think about this podcast. Do some commenting, like and share, and and let's get the word out. Um, it really, really helps the podcast if you subscribe, so please do that, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Blessings. Yes.